Hello. It's such a treat to be here. I wasn't supposed to be here. I was supposed to be in Singapore. Um, but my trip got cancelled and I am very, very happy to be here. Um, firstly, thank you for inviting me back. It's very kind of you and I very much appreciate it. Um, I hope you're all well. Yes, indeed. So today... Um, I hope you're taking notes because it's the kind of thing that you might want to take notes uh, for. I'm going to talk about what I would say is heavy subject matter. So it's, I'm talking about secularization. Secularization, and I'll unpack some of that for you today. Um, for me, it's about truth um, in the church in the West. So let's really get into this. Uh, let me pray before I start. Father, we love you and we trust you. But Lord, you are so much higher, bigger than we are. Your ways are so much higher than our ways. And we sometimes say that confidently, but we really just ants looking at the universe trying to figure out how it all works. So we throw ourselves on your mercy today, we humbly come to you and say, open our eyes, Spirit of God, reveal your truth to us. Help us navigate the landscape, navigate our lives, and let your word be like light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. Lord, give us, guide us today. I pray for every heart in this place that they would know that you love them and that your instruction is because of your love to them. In Jesus' name, and everyone says? Amen. Amen. Okay, let's get into it. So firstly, these are my views regarding the understanding of the times and knowing what to do, which is a nod to the passage in uh, 1 Chronicles around the sons of Issachar, and also Matthew 24, where Jesus calls us to read and understand the signs of the times. My personal views here are a mix of ideological and theological uh, I studied theology, but I don't consider myself a theologian. Um, I'm very interested in ideology, but I don't consider myself an expert on politics and policy. Uh, what I am, however, is I'm passionate about the church, and I'm passionate about how the church navigates its way through these days that we find ourselves in. That passion has really led me to talking to you about the matters I'm talking to you today. Um, Got a few warnings. I've never quite had so many warnings in front of a sermon, but uh, here's a few. I've tried to avoid too many complicated words, um, but I did not want to dumb things down. So I've tried to keep them few. Also on the surface, the message isn't necessarily particularly uplifting, but I think it can be if you'll let yourself be led by Christ and to Christ. That's really important to me today that the end point here is Christ. When you build your house on a rock, even the most vicious of storms can be withstood. And so it can be, I think, with today's subject matter. And in that sense, it does not necessarily need to drag you down, but it can be like standing on a rock. A colleague of mine refers to this subject in the, in the following three ways. I think it's, it's pretty good. He says, things are probably much worse out there than you think they are. Number two, things are probably going to get much more worse before they get better. And number three, things are never really as bad when Jesus is with you in the boat. And I think that's pretty good. 
Um, first scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, you all know it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I have mysteries and knowledge and I have lots of faith and I can move mountains, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. The difficult balance I have to strike with what I'm sharing with you today is that you may be tempted in your heart or the enemy to think that I'm being reactive or shallow or without love or without experience in this area. What I'm trying to achieve today is to call us back to supreme devotion to the one who loves us. And that's why I said being led by Christ through all of this. He's established the earth and he's established the order of all things. And our trust needs to be in his instruction that it comes from a good place. The enemy's work is about disorder and countering the truth of God's way. So if we point to God's order of the way to live, it is to ensure we stay within his promise. We do that because we love God and we trust his instructions. In that way, I'm speaking to you today out of love, my love for God and my love to see you walk in love. So secularization, what is it defined as? It is defined as the conversion of something from religious to secular possession or use. And the way it does that is by separating out spiritual matters or religious matters from it. So in many ways, secularization is movement. It's when an institution or a government or a society no longer attaches itself to spiritual matters or religious matters, that process of moving towards that place is called secularization. So if a country's population has gone from religious or spiritual over decades to being less religious or spiritual, you would say that this is evidence of the secularization of that society. You with me? Now just a point to clarify here. I'm using the word religious here in the positive. I'm using it in a way that concerns all of us who uphold Christian and religious belief, so in a positive sense and defend that belief. It's not taken to mean the kind of religious where we talk about the quality of somebody's personal faith. That is an important subject, so in evangelical circles we often refer to, we are not religious but we have a relationship with Christ. That's a valid point, but I'm not talking about it like that today. I'm just meaning religious as a catch-all phrase for those of us who affirm faith and uphold it. You with me? Okay, so the question I would then ask is, can the church move away from being religious to being non-religious or can a Christian or a church become secularized? The answer is yes. I'll give you two examples from the scriptures. That's not the only two, but two famous ones. Romans 12 verse 2 says, don't conform to the pattern of this world. I would say inherently in the warning is the inference that you can conform to the pattern of the world. Uh, Another one, Hebrews 2 verse 1, probably the same writer says, Give earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So thinking and behavior occurs in patterns. The way you behave in this world is your pattern. The way a large company operates is its pattern. The way a family works 
shows its pattern. That pattern contains all the values and the virtues and the beliefs of that person or that group or that institution. The world that Paul is talking about is the social order that does not align with God's values. It's a system of belief that those that believe in other gods or they don't believe in any god hold. Such individuals progress through life with a worldview that's built on the greatest influences on their culture and the society, but with a distinctly faithless perspective or a perspective that is not Christian. So the social order we are a part of may take from certain faith elements or it may take from no faith elements and therefore build its worldview. For example, the Far East or the Middle East, if you've been there or worked there, are both social orders that contain strong religious and strong non-religious adherents. Both have strong beliefs about how humans should live and organize themselves. In other words, their anthropology. Uh, anthropology. And both of those, just like here in the West, are able to be worldly in their conclusions about society, culture, behavior, language, biology. So Christians, as Christians, we find ourselves living in these social orders, but we are asked not to conform to them. For a Christian to conform to a worldly pattern, or to drift away, as Paul puts it, would be to believe things about the creator and the creation that is in direct opposition to the creator's stated intent. And I can put a full stop there and sort of end today and say that sort of is at the heart of secularization. You have, or a group or an institution has moved from adherence to God's stated intent, his created order, to adopting views that is now in contrast to that. And in a sense, that's how you can see movement happening because it doesn't necessarily happen in a bang. It is a slow adoption here, it's a slow adoption there, it's a slow adoption there. And before you know it, you've moved fairly far down the track. And also the word world that is used there, when Jesus says, for instance, you are the light of the world in Matthew 15, that word world in the Greek is cosmos, which literally means something ordered. And the way it's used is in a system of order. So when we are speaking into the world, we're speaking into a societal order, an order of beliefs. This is the way we do it. This is the way we think. And so in in a sense, the way the scripture points the world is that we speak into it, it being darkness, we speak a message of light. And so we break into that world and we are often contrary to that world. So in one sense, none of us should ever be surprised at the opposition to some of the beliefs we hold. And we shouldn't be surprised that we're asked to stand by the Lord on some beliefs and be unpopular in the process. Now I would say, depending on the type of church upbringing you've had, you may actually be shocked at some point to find that we are not all about just open arms and you know, be as you want and come as you are. I'm not against at all us being open and embracing, but we've got to be careful lest we find ourselves drifting from things that is being stated by the Lord. Are you with me? So 
I use the word anthropology, which is the study of human society and culture and how they develop. So in many ways, secularization is a matter of anthropology. The world has a way of seeing how society should be, how society should order itself, how humans should be. And the Bible has an anthropology about how humans should be, should live. The government rests on his shoulder. Government is a God idea, which is why it's essential that we look at the pillars of society as part of the Christian experience and part of the Christian mandate. So if churches or Christians become secularized, it is because they drift away from this biblical anthropology. That is to say they adopt views about society, culture, behavior, language, and biology that is in opposition to the creator's stated intent. And in the mainstream culture, there is this ongoing conflict between social groups in a struggle for dominance of whose values and whose beliefs and whose preferences and practices is most important, and this is most commonly known, if you follow the news, as the culture wars. It commonly refers to topics on which there is general societal disagreement and polarization. Things like racial justice, transgender rights, abortion, taxation, to name a few hot topics. Think of that uncle on Christmas Day, after a few glasses of red wine and when the views on politics come out. I don't mean you, Avil, of course. Never, never, Avil. Often culture wars are based on religious issues, which brings it straight into the church, like the definition of marriage. A few years ago in the US was a big issue. Just because I'm a little tired of talking, I'm going to play you a little clip of exactly such an exchange on television. No, why does it say holy on the Bible? Because, see, any other book, if it was writing about these great people in the past, it tended to gloss over their sins. No, but we discussed this but last time. When the Bible one. says that if you commit adultery, you're going to be stoned to death. Uh, and that's, that is a, as we said, or that's a civil law for the nation of Israel. But it's still an element of the Bible that is flawed. Well, evidently, for that generation, that's their, that's their commandment. Exactly my point. Exactly like the Constitution. But it's not one of the moral laws. No, but it's still in the Bible, and it's flawed. Both the believe, Bible I do not and the Constitution the were well-intentioned, but they are basically inherently flawed, what I believe, hence the need to amend it. My point to you about gay rights, yeah, for example, yeah. it's time for an amendment to the Bible. No. You what should I, compile a new Bible. <laughs> not a chance. What I, <laughs> what I believe is flawed is human opinion because it constantly changes. In fact, we do it every eight years. In America, we have a, we have a change in opinion. What was pop, what was hot, is now not. And I willingly admit, willingly admit, that I base my worldview on the Bible, which I believe is true. And I, and, and truth, my definition of truth is, if it's new, it's not true. If it was true a thousand years ago, it'll be true a thousand years from today. Opinion changes, but truth doesn't. We're going to agree to disagree on that. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. So while temptation towards godlessness has always been there for the church, we, however, are living in unprecedented times. Identity politics, opportunistic politicians, the rise of social media are polarizing the Western world, fueling hatred and division at a scale not seen before. It's just a side note. I take comfort that when the Lord thought 2022 
my name and your name came up in the hat. So he must have equipped us, right? That's a side point. Okay. These issues are, of course, all bleeding into the church. Church attendance in this country is at rapid decline, but all across the Western world as well. And some call this the post-Christian era, and I agree with them. On the international front, we are also seeing seismic shifts. As Anne Applebaum of The Atlantic magazine writes, if the 20th century was the story of slow, uneven progress towards liberal democracy over ideologies like communism or fascism or virulent nationalism, the 21st century, however, so far, is a story of the reverse. Behind me should be a picture of some famous leaders around the world. What we have seen on the international front is what some call the rise of a values-based order over a rights-based order. Now, that's not to say that I'm today disagreeing with the values-based order, but in the way that this is meant is through the influence like uh, autocratic leaders, Putin, Erdogan, Xi Jinping, etc. Um, this values-based order has ridden, risen. The West has promoted a rights-based order which is being disputed by a group of foreign powers, like the ones behind me, uh, as merely a different set of values. In other words, that's your values, West. We have different values, and therefore, that's not really important. Our values applies to our cultural context. So, for instance, Applebaum writes, the leaders of China have spent a decade disputing human rights language, long used by international institutions, successfully convincing many people around the world that these Western concepts don't apply to them. Russia has gone beyond merely ignoring foreign criticism to outright mocking it. So what's important to note here is that Western values such as human rights are deeply rooted in Christian and Judean thought and worldview. It's not born out of clever political theory the way in which the Western world operates around things like human rights comes from Scripture. The Magna Carta is off the back of a biblical worldview which eventually made its way to America on which the American experiment has started and the concept of it's a free country all stems from the things we are holding in our hands today. Their decline in the West should be of paramount concern to every Christian. A most helpful biblical framing for what's happening today can be found in Romans 1, 18 to 25. I'm not going to read that scripture, but I'd like you to take it down. Romans 1, verse 18 to 25, which details, amazingly considering it's 2,000 years old, how a society degrades based on its rejection of God. And there's three things that you'll read there. You can read it in your own time, but I'm just going to summarize them for you. Number one, it plots that people firstly suppresses the truth in unrighteousness, and that's essentially secularism. Number two, people become futile in their thoughts. And what Romans unpacks there is that their foolish hearts are darkened, they profess to be wise, they become fools, and they do things that are not fitting. And number three, and this is the worst one, is that people are left to their own decay. In their uncleanness and in their lust, they dishonor their bodies and develop shameful unnatural passions, worshipping the creature rather than the creator, yeah. 
and God gives them over to a debased mind. While I'm generalizing massively now, I believe it's accurate to say we are living in a moment of cultural rejection of Christianity in the West. Just let that sink in if you haven't thought of it like that. We are no longer the majority in the West. Certainly not culturally. However, simultaneously and amazingly, the following things are also happening. The culture at large, Christian, non-Christian, the whole of all of us in the West, generally assumes some features of Christianity. We champion human rights. We talk about morality and what's wrong and what's right. We have common worldview on some political matters. All things which stem from our common Christian history. So whether my parents' generation went to church on Sundays and then went drinking from Monday to Saturday, they still had a common value system when I was growing up about what's right and what's wrong. Lots of that's gone now, just gone. Partly because we don't go to churches anymore, we don't hold common you know, moral frameworks, etc. But the culture is still firing off a lot of this stuff from the former 2,000 years. Number two, the central, there's a central assumption that these gifts and goods of Christianity will continue. But it can't. It can't. If you pull out the foundation from under it, leaving the society um, to the state... Um, leaving the society, the society to its own devices, then the most powerful voices and the most influential people will ultimately be shaping values in the future. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening right now. And number three, there's a growing realization by some that actually these gifts from Christianity won't be sustained. So you may have heard of in the alternative media scene, so your podcasts, not, not CNN, not BBC, alternative media, typically podcasts, blogs, etc. Um, the rise of people like Jordan Peterson, the UK's Douglas Murray, and among, among others, are prominent non-Christian thinkers, speakers, authors, who are all saying Christianity is on the decline, the culture is being negatively affected by it, and that's not good. We don't know what the answer is, but the decline of culture, uh, Christianity is not a good thing. I look at that and I feel it's like the rocks are crying out. Right? We are living in a world that has a desire to have the benefits of the kingdom without the king. So, are you still with me? If we are not careful, and here's that Hebrews warning again, international and domestic politics and the culture wars will play itself in the Christian world and take root in matters which for the Christian, already there is guidance and instruction from God himself. On some matters like LGBTQ, a hateful, divisive spirit has already infiltrated many parts of the church. Caveat, I am not speaking down on LGBTQ issues right now. I'm not addressing that issue. I'm just saying the discussion around that is often very hateful, very angry, very divisive. And I'm pretty sure most of us here have had some taste of some of that. We've got to remember that we are not fueled by hate. We are fueled by love. 
And by our love for one another, the world will know that he is real. It's maybe more acutely, uh, or that, that scripture is more acute to me now than it's ever been. That how the church handles the cultural fragmentation is possibly going to be one of our greatest witnesses. In other words, let's not eat one another in the process. So how did we get here and what does this all mean and what's the Christian response? That's basically where I'm going to land the plane, so thank you for being so uh, generous with your time. Now here's um, a few thoughts I want to leave with you. Um, it's not going to be five minutes, probably a little longer, but two, th- two sort of sections. How did we get here? So rarely do church leaders and institutions and groups leap at once from celebrating a sort of orthodox conservative view to suddenly now celebrating the country. It's usually happening in a series of steps. So Kevin DeYoung is a pastor and professor in theology in America, North Carolina, and focusing on the LGBT um, issues, he's outlined seven steps that can help us to understand how leaders and institutions drift away. So if you're interested in how an organization or a church might find itself drifting, here are seven steps that I'll unpack for you. Number one, firstly, there is silence. The Christian leader or the publication or the institution that used to be quite clear on matters of sexuality and marriage, and remember, I'm just following what the author has outlined, so he focused on LGBTQ. Um, Institutions that will be clear on matters of sexuality and marriage, they just don't talk about any of that anymore. No matter what controversy erupts, what new cultural pressure cries out for clarification, nothing is said. It's as if the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and all of its effects has ceased to exist. And in this church, we fail our young people, whose teachers are now the loudest voices in the culture. Number two, next comes complexification. So even though the church around the globe for virtually 2,000 years has had no trouble coming to universal convictions about some of the issues around sexuality, gender, and marriage, even across Roman Catholicism, the Orthodox world, and the Protestant world, which is mind-boggling, now suddenly questions about homosexuality and gender become hopelessly complicated. It is complicated. The issues, it is said, demand a multidisciplinary expertise for us to get involved in it. It is said that um, for many Christians and Christian leaders, simply the time required to study, understand, and verbalizing an issue which seems to be like soap and move around all the time is simply overwhelming. The level of time, research, and dedication needed in this area is part of why it's complexifying. That's not a word, I made it up now. Sadly, however, despite the many valid and important counter-arguments, research, testimonies, statistics out there, many simply fail to realize the urgency of the moment, which would otherwise have catalyzed them into action. Number three, pivoting. There's often an explicit pivot to other issues. So for instance, oh, sex and marriage, Those are actually minor ethical conundrums. Um, We need to focus on missions. We need to focus on racial justice, poverty, evangelism. That's the real thing. Um, In either case, I would say there's a deliberate and perhaps a convenient move to ignore what is a swiveling vortex of sexual confusion, which destroys seemingly everything in its path. 
Number four, the next stage is frustration with those who are pointing out the sin than those committing the sin. And this is often the telltale signs that change in views has already taken place by the person or the institution. So the holder of the orthodox or the conservative view is considered bothersome. While most of the sympathy now leans towards the revisionist side, there is great patience for the sexual struggler and nothing but disdain for those who dared to speak of sin, judgment, and the need for repentance, despite the fact that if you read the words of our Savior, he seems to be pretty strong on those things. Number five, along the way, a canon of scripture develops within the canon of scripture. Words and phrases are deconstructed and used to affirm a new view or a revisionist view of the world or a particular issue. Jesus is now pitted against Paul. The Old Testament is sort of put aside as irrelevant or not for now. Scripture no longer functions as an inerrant and unified whole. Careful exegesis and unpacking of the scripture disappears in the background. And this is what I find so true. Slogans and buzzwords take center stage and have become the map by which many of us have dealt with these issues. Love is love. Sounds good, I don't disagree, but you've got to unpack some of these things to see what sits behind them. Number six, at the same time, Arguments become personal and privatized. So we move maybe from a larger issue to a very personal thing. Again, it's good reasons for this, but these are just the steps that typically happen. So the public debate at this point is no longer really about the scripture or the Christian tradition. It's now focused on friends we know, the people we've talked to, that son, that daughter, that sister, my brother, my niece has now come out or facing one of these plethora of issues. We often hear of how traumatized to the point of possible self-harm people are now in our midst and how the orthodox position of the conservative view is not helping. In fact, it's the problem. You only get to this stage when views of sin, judgment, and accountability to God is no longer primary. You simply no longer arguing from the same base. You know, I was... Uh, just before I get to the seventh point, I was reading about a very prominent theologian that in the last two years have just turned to what he would call a pro-LGBT theology. And what is interesting is um, the person remarking on what's happened was saying he felt that investigating the issue, there was a point at which that theologian departed from what the original discussion was and actually started actually, without stating it, arguing on a different basis. And his move away was no longer really what, because his move away no longer became about the interpretation of the scripture and what does the Bible say in this case about homosexuality. It became about actually other things. So it is interesting. The further it sort of drifts, you know, it has to fire off different things. Finally, number seven, there's a newfound enlightenment that is acknowledged and celebrated. When formerly Christian leaders or organizations and institutions reach stage seven, there is much talk about how good it feels to be finally on the side of love and inclusion. The old way of thinking is quickly dismissed as an unfortunate byproduct of having grown up in a fundamentalist family or an evangelical purity culture. And despite 
thousands of years of convention that we should carefully heed, there tends to be a shunning and denial of strong counter-arguments as irrelevant or not worth pursuing in the light of the new position. So, what is our response as Christians and Christian leaders to this cultural moment? I've got four points to give you. Are you still with me? Yes. Yeah, okay. Is this helpful? Yes. Okay. Number one, pray and look to the Lord. Amen. Pray and look to the Lord. Firstly, Pray that God would send out workers into the field. Matthew 9 verse 38 says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. We need Christian people following Jesus in government, family life, business, media, education, the arts, and the church. That is the Christian mandate. You follow Christ and you're obedient to what he's asking for you in every sphere in society. Let's pray that God would raise up people from this church, from the church as a whole, um, to go out and reap that harvest. Amen. And the harvest isn't necessarily people confessing Christ in the moment. The harvest, I think, in this sense, can be the salt effect yeah. Yeah. you have sure. in the earth. Amen. By looking to the Lord, I am thinking of Hebrews 12. Uh, and the scripture will come up behind me. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now has promised saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the church which cannot be shaken may remain. Sorry, not the church. That the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Interesting. Look at the words there. God says he will be shaking the earth. He will remove things that are being shaken so that the things that can't be shaken will remain. In this moment, as you're praying, you've got to remember that as bad as it looks, God is involved in shaking things. Isn't it interesting how across the Christian world, all of our models and our leaders that um, hold up particular ways of doing things, they're all failing us. You just see them dropping like flies all over. And perhaps we've put too much stock in particular ways of doing things and how it should be. Um, I'm using the scripture to say that, yes, I think that's a reason why we can explain what's happening. But also, if God's doing the shaking, then he will look after you in the process, right? So God is removing things. Do not fear, but pray that Jesus will send people and that he will equip you. Number two, how do Christians respond to this moment? Learn a new language. In my experience, the personal experience, most of the Christians and church leaders I have seen met across America, um, uh, this country, South Africa, Australia, and a little bit in sort of um, the East. I don't find have any language to engage these cultural changes. 
we often revert to soundbite responses like love the sinner, hate the sin, without realizing the seismic shifts that has occurred. For instance, if you're in your 20s or younger, the concept of sin does, has not existed for you in the society. You weren't taught that very likely. So, so and, and, and if you're, for instance, um, living as a homosexual person, you have legal rights. So for me to say to you, love this uh, sinner and not the sin, they, people can't make that distinction because they're not doing anything wrong. The law is protecting them. So why, who are we to come and talk to them about them? So look, I'm not trying to be unfair. I know we are using those, that kind of language here and in most places I go, and there's a good reason. We do believe in sin, and we do believe that we don't condemn people because they're sinners, absolutely. But we also got to realize that we're dealing with a culture that no longer understands some of these mental frameworks. So what I'm just suggesting is that you've got to start looking at your language as a Christian. And understand that you might be from Mars and they're from Venus kind of thing. You with me? I'm not passing judgment on you for using that. Please don't hear me wrong. I'm just trying to sort of pull us a little higher. Um, and the example of people in their 20s and homosexuality or transgenderism, this is one example of how people might misunderstand what you mean well, but just simply have no way of understanding what you're trying to say to them. Um, it's going to take us digging deeper if we really want to be effective for Jesus, I think. And here is where Paul, again, beautifully leads us. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. What will it look like if your Christian life is, I become to those who are not under the law as to win those who are under the law? It's a radical rethink of how you engage and talk and the subjects that you're interested in, the things you're saying and the places you go to win those. It's not a quick answer and a silver bullet statement that makes people go, whoa, I'm... It sometimes is deep engagement and longevity and having strategy for your life and saying, God, how can you help us, help me to make meaningful change in an area? Or perhaps you're faced with a situation in a relationship or a family member who's dealing with these things and perhaps the strategy that you need from God is, how do I do this over years and show that you are good, the heart of Christ is for this person and that they don't only ever hear the judgment of these things. But of course, the difficulty in these things is that it's hard to hear. Okay, if we want to be effective, we need to commit to deeper understanding of our culture and the language it now speaks, what drives it, and how our faith intersects with that. The good news is God has already raised up many, many wonderful thinkers and leaders that can steer us through. I'm not going to list them here now, and I certainly don't have a definitive list, but there are Christians in this world, in the UK, uh, in America, Australia, all parts of the world that are doing incredible work addressing some of these challenges, looking at it from a Christian perspective, very respected, etc., etc. Help does exist, and thank God for the internet. Most urgently, 
I would say we need to have answers as churches to issues of race, gender, and sexuality. Not aggressive, advancing, loveless positions. I'm not saying go placard anywhere. But uncompromising, hold the ground positions. In other words, be accepting that some of these things are uncomfortable. We are not going to change. But it's very different from having an aggressive position as well. It doesn't have to be aggressive for us to, to um, follow the Lord. Um, God has given us help, but he requires us to have courage, which is what he said to Joshua. He said to him four times, have courage. And courage is defined as doing something while you're afraid. Number three, be driven by truth. So in prayer, I was asking the Lord, how do I respond with my own life to these challenges? And these are the things that I've taken as sort of my own life. Um, some, some of it feels like guidance. Some of it feels like some ways of thinking. So uh, this would be 3A. The truth is not in mainstream narratives. Be very careful to fully adopt mainstream narratives on anything, especially if it comes from the media. The media is not driven by truth. Jesus talked to the woman by the well about a time coming when people will worship him in spirit and in truth. We have to seek Christ-centered, spirit-surrendered understanding, even to the point that challenges us deeply. I wish I could accept some of the views on the sexual issues of today because it would just be so much simpler. Because some of it is just confusing, you know. However, I cannot do so and claim to follow the same Christ who offers salvation through a narrow way. Sometimes it's just difficult. You know? And maybe that's why we're going to need one another Amen. in these days. Amen. Some of us may pay a very high cost. Uh, 3B, if you're still tracking. <laughs> Listen carefully. Understand the full picture by studying the subject matter carefully. We cannot ignore the array of legitimate counter-arguments to issues on gender, race and sexuality, biology, being offered by respected Christians. But there are also lots in the scientific world going on that is important when somebody who doesn't believe what we believe is raising those. We don't always have to win by saying, yes, I've got an answer. We have to listen and show that we are listening. It is, however, the person that is devoid of truth in their heart who seeks to advance a position even if it requires misrepresenting other people or their credentials or other learned persons. So let's learn from the full spectrum of views in both the Christian and secular leaders, but we take our lead from Christians who are respected and who uphold Christian values. For some of the issues in the culture wars, you'll actually find that many non-Christians and people from other religions are actually aligned with Christian belief. And I believe that's partly because God made people and hardwired certain things in all of us. And there is a human leaning on certain things, which I think just you can see across, common across all humanity. And then uh, 3C, create places for conversation. Create places for conversation. I think this is where churches can be amazing. So maybe you are well placed to invite people into your home and have them really fight it out. 
knowing that they can come and yell at each other and it won't go beyond there. Let me tell you what, I've never heard in all this time dealing with this issue that there are places that people can go. You know, a good friend, come over, you've got the issue, I know you've got the issue, come and scream at each other, there'll be coffee and donuts afterwards. We'll pray at the end, we'll agree to disagree, but sometimes just getting out what you feel and want to say is what helps people move onto a path and the Spirit of God can do something in their lives, right? A church is a great place for that. Maybe God's calling you to do that. In the same way, for those people who are already deciding they're following Christ despite the cultural perspective on a particular thing like sexuality, create places of support and healing. You know, we talk about connect groups for years and years and years, or home groups. What about home groups around some of these issues where people can simply just have a space where for a number of months they are regularly prayed for, communion is taken, the spirit is invited, they are not judged because they feel and say and think certain things. You will be amazed what God can do when people just create these kinds of spaces. Okay, number four. Are you still with me? Number four, renew your commitment to God's ways. And that is simply to say, decide who you will follow. It's awful to sit in a church with a front on when you don't believe certain things. Jesus tells us, don't be lukewarm. So just make a decision who you're going to serve when it comes to some of these things. In Revelation 2, Jesus is judging one of the churches and he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allowed that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants. We don't want to have wrong beliefs. This church would be classified as evangelical, right? Order of St. Leonard, that's part of the evangelical movement. I don't know if you know this, but that means that you're a Protestant who emphasizes personal conversion, evangelism, the authority of the Bible, that it's inerrant, uh, and the belief that Jesus' death reconciled God and humans. That's the core tenets of evangelicalism. If you disagree fundamentally with some of these, just release yourself from it. Just release yourself from it. If you don't believe them, don't be lukewarm and don't make your life more complicated, but equally serve Christ fully and not culture or your feelings or modern reinterpretations of the truth. John 1 verse 27 says, religion that our God and Father is pleased with is look after the widow and the orphan in their distress and do not be polluted by the world. Summed up in one verse, look after those who are oppressed, widow and the orphan, and don't be polluted by the thinking and the patterns of the world. Number five, just accept that taking these positions will cost you. One theologian put it like this, simply put, embrace the freakishness of the gospel. Just embrace it. We are weird. We are weird. (laughs) Effie, calm down. Just, just embrace the freakishness of the gospel. That you know, and again, if that's not something that after years of being in the presence of the Lord you want to do it anymore, release yourself from it equally. Difficult thing to say, but let's be all in. Jesus warned us that days will come where they will drag us into the synagogues, and that we may be persecuted as a result. 
The interesting thing there is that they will drag us into the synagogues. They will drag us into the places of worship to judge us. I work to raise awareness of Christian persecution. I work for a group called Open Doors. So every week I see stories of Christians being persecuted and I see the decisions they are making all around the world. So let me tell you firstly, their lives are filled with miracles and the presence of God. Despite the suffering that I see, I also have never seen this amount of manifestation of the presence of God. So I'm totally convinced that if I am going to have to suffer for my following of Jesus in some of these very difficult areas, that Jesus will be with me, just like he is with the persecuted church. As a side point, I don't know if you've heard about this. I love it, so I'm just going to tell you. What we see constantly, month after month, is stories out of the Middle East, how Muslims dream about a man in white. It makes me want to cry every time I think of it. So Jesus is building his church, you know. Jesus is present when we suffer for him. He appears, he comforts, he speaks, he yes. acts miraculously. I've even heard it reported that we should not ask for persecution to stop because it refines parts of the church and it brings others into the kingdom. I know this is a world away from where we're at. I'm just trying to say that God is with us if we stand for him. Amen. Uh, we may lose friends, but I think that's a small price considering the gift of his friendship. We may be rejected by colleagues and shunned by society, which, by the way, was your words this morning, Arvel, when you stood up here. You said you may feel rejected by people. That is a small price, considering we've been given eternal life. And my final point is, remember, number six, God's got you. Do not fear. That's what he said. Do not fear. Watch and pray. If the world's shaking, remember, he's shaking it. Watch, observe, understand, look what's going on, and pray. Pray, 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 pray. He doesn't ask you to fix this broken world. Remember, as much as I'm saying seek understanding, just like the psalmist or the uh, Proverbs says, seek understanding, you are not required to fix these complex matters. What you are required is to not deny Jesus. And if Jesus says this is the order... You can confidently believe that he's got the best interest at heart. Um, I've got kids, like many of you have kids, and um, my kids often want to take stuff out of the oven. And I know I can't let them. They're not strong enough. That it's hot. They'll burn. All this kind of thing. In many ways, when God lays out the social order that, as a biblical anthropology, you and I should be standing up against, uh, you know, holding on to, it is like somebody holding up, uh, looking at a child, and going. I know how this works. Follow it, despite the, the pressures and the difficulties in the world, because if you don't, things unravel. Look at how our society is unraveling around gender identity, right? Again, I am not saying that these aren't legitimate things that require deep understanding and help in many cases, but um, our politicians, until five minutes ago, could tell you what a woman was, according to the dictionary, We've gotten ourselves so twisted in these things that we, 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 we're refusing to have conversations. Is that right? Is that wrong? That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is you start removing the order on which things are built and suddenly everything becomes unstable. I will end. I hope that was encouraging and insightful. I will end with what I think is the most powerful thing, which is Jesus' prayer for us just before he was taken in Gethsemane. He prays for his disciples and he prays for 
all people who would believe in him one day. Listen carefully, I've asked Anne to read it. Um, listen carefully to Jesus thinking of you today and praying these words over you and then after that you can just take us to where we need to go. This is John 17 and I'm reading from verse 9. It's Jesus speaking. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I no longer am in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you sent me, and I loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, and that may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me 
may be in them and I in them. Let's pray.